waste of land, a sodden plain, a lurid sunset sky, with clouds that fled and faded fast, and ghostly fantasy. A field upturned by trampling feet, a field apiled with slain, with horse and rider blent in death, upon the battle plain. The dying and the dead lie low, for them no more shall rise, the evening moon nor midnight stars, nor daylight's soft surprise. They will not wake to tenderest call, nor see again each home, where waiting hearts shall throb and break, when this day's tidings come. My name is Mark Belial, and this is The Occluded. This is episode two, Lady and Devil. As fighting broke out across the whole of Gettysburg, dozens of local farms were seized by both sides. The large farmhouses made natural officers' quarters. They were safe places where battle plans could be drawn up, forces could be staged, and the wounded and dying could be tended to. The bulk of these farmhouses were utilized by advancing Confederate forces looking to assault Union defensive lines. But among those conscripted farmhouses, one loomed more important than most others. The Daniel Lady Farm began its construction around 1820 by its namesake owner. Daniel Lady took almost 10 years to complete the farmhouse, starting with a large hearth room and then expanding outward. By 1830, Lady moved his wife and family into the home where they raised seven children in peace for the next 33 years. Daniel Lady had heard rumors of the approaching Confederate forces and feared his farmhouse would be taken. This concern, as it turned out, wasn't unfounded. On June 26, 1863, his son's birthday, Confederate troops arrived at Lady's farm and told the family they would have to evacuate their home. During the first day of fighting at Gettysburg, Robert E. Lee himself toured the farm to determine its strategic value. As he looked across the battlefield, Lee took note of the farm's close proximity to Culp's Hill, a key point in the Union defensive line. He determined Daniel Lady's farm would be the perfect place to stage the assault on Culp's Hill. July 2nd, 1863 found Confederate General Richard S. Ewell positioning his men around the farm and preparing for the attack. Intelligence reports stated Union supply lines were centered around Culp's Hill. If Ewell's men could overwhelm Northern forces, Union soldiers would lose access to rations, ammunition, artillery, and medical supplies. They would also most likely lose the war. But Lee and Ewell weren't the only ones who understood the importance of holding Culp's Hill. Union General George Meade, commander of the Army of the Potomac, also knew Culp's Hill was crucial to the war effort. He took note of the Daniel Lady Farm and decided he would launch an attack from the hill to dislodge the Confederate forces there. But as the afternoon began to melt into evening, Ewell beat him to the punch. Thirty-two Confederate cannons opened up on Culp's Hill and the remnants of the 12th Union Corps. For three hours, the cannons of the Confederacy rained down upon the 12th. Union forces had spent the day constructing earthworks in defensive positions. 
efforts that were paying dividends as thousands of Confederate soldiers moved to assault their position. The fate of the Union rested upon the 5,000 rebels and 1,424 Yankees. The vicious fighting went long into the night. The 12th Corps was eventually reinforced by the 1st and the 11th Corps, and together they repulsed the Confederate attack. The battle had been thought a foregone conclusion, but the resiliency of the Union soldiers proved priceless. The demoralized Southerners returned the Daniel Lady farm shot to pieces. Furniture was destroyed and used as firewood. Doors were yanked off hinges and used as makeshift stretchers and operating tables. Enlisted men had their wounds tended in the barn, while officers were treated in the house. And as the night stretched into the morning, they prepared for another assault on Culp's Hill. The march to the hill was not as easy as it was the day before. Union artillery had been deployed overnight, and now it was the Confederates' turn to be shelled as they advanced through the heavy tree cover. They didn't know it, but pure hell lay before them. 22,000 Americans would fight and bleed and die for Culp's Hill. Over a million rounds of ammunition were fired on July 3rd, and the smoke from the guns shrouded the entire defensive position, making it impossible to see the advancing rebels. But still, they fought on. Confederate forces would throw themselves against Culp's Hill again and again and again, and each time Union troops would turn them away in a desperate bid for survival. Finally, after seven hours of non-stop fighting, Confederate forces retreated for the last time. Culp's Hill remained in Union hands. Thousands limped back. Hundreds were carried or dragged towards the Daniel Lady farm. Countless men returned to wait out their final moments in screaming agony at the farm-turned-makeshift field hospital. How many men died within those walls, within that barn? How many men endured amputations? How many of them lived through a living hell as blood and limbs and corpses paved the ground? The violence, the suffering, the failure. The Daniel Lady Farm bears both physical and psychic scars today. The house itself has been touched forever with the lingering traces of one of the bloodiest conflicts in American history. Soldiers' initials have been carved into the preserved door frames, easily legible even today. Cannonball fragments from errand artillery are still lodged into the joists holding up the building. Most eerily, dried blood from long dead soldiers still stains the walls and floorboards. Forensic researchers have verified the blood and fingerprints still visible in the house were indeed from the soldiers who fought there. They also found places where bloodied rags had been piled up, staining the floor crimson. A scarlet streak from where a hand had swept through a pool of blood is easily discernible. Those same teams brought cadaver dogs to the property and located unmarked graves of soldiers who were buried during the battle. These dead men left behind spirits who can't rest. Apparitions of Confederate soldiers are still seen patrolling the farmland, waiting to advance straight into the jaws of a bloodthirsty beast named War. Paranormal investigators believe the spirit of General Ewell himself still walks the farm, another Confederate officer marked by failure, haunted by the ghost of what might have been. But while the fields in the barn have been known to host specters, 
the most haunted place on the farm is the house itself. The reason for the haunting wasn't discovered until much later. For two years, the fighting raged across the United States until it finally burned itself out. The war ended, and those caught within its grasp struggled to return to normalcy. When Daniel Lady returned to his farm, he looked at the remnants left by the war. He and his family trudged through the trash up the stairs to the bedrooms. They discovered the last nasty surprise the war had left behind, beyond the threshold of a bedroom. A desiccated corpse dressed in Confederate gray, left behind inexplicably as Lee's forces retreated, left behind to molder and decay in the darkness and quiet, left to fester, left to slowly attach itself to the walls. Cold spots dominate the room, and observers describe an eerie, uneasy feeling whenever the sun sets. Whose soul now resides in the farmhouse built by Daniel Lady? We'll never know. The soldier shares that in common with thousands of others who perished at Culp's Hill. In the end, the Union forces held strong. They stemmed the tide, protected the supply lines, and saved the United States. But the cost was great. How many gallons of blood were spilled? How much lead was spent? How many men died screaming in the dark? And how much of hell was loosed on that battlefield? If war is hell, then the devil himself reigned over Gettysburg, and he held court four miles away on the western flank of the Union lines. On the edge of town, just to the west of Little Round Top and Big Round Top, on the southern portion of Hawks Ridge, there is a large formation of rocks that was formed 200 million years in the past. The rocks have stood century for all those years, waiting like a sinister monolith for the two armies on those three fateful days in July. The locals had named this formation long before the war broke out. Townsfolk told rumors about a large serpent that lived within the formation, a creature fearsome enough to have earned the name Devil. And that formation of rocks became known as the Devil's Den. The Devil's Den was one of the highest points on the battlefield and offered a huge strategic advantage for whichever side controlled it. General Lee was once again determined to leverage elevation against Union forces. He planned for the Confederate troops to take control of the den and then outflank the Union lines on the Western Front. But for all of Lee's strategic genius, he was still human. Two months earlier, his best friend and second-in-command Thomas Stonewall Jackson was shot by his own men during the Battle of Chancellorsville. The military genius survived the shooting, but he developed pneumonia and died a week afterwards. Lee blamed the Union for his best friend's death. His subordinates began to notice a slight shift in their leader. He grew angry, bloodthirsty even. He vowed to make the Union pay for Jackson's death. For him, the Civil War had become much, much more personal. All of this came to a head on July 2nd. He informed his new second-in-command, General James Longstreet, of his intentions to assault the heart of the Union at Cemetery Hill by outflanking the Yankee lines. In order to do this, he would need to control the Devil's Den. 
Longstreet advised against it, told Lee the Federal strength was too great and the attack would be doomed to fail. Lee ignored the advice and pressed forward. That decision would cause the deaths of 35,000 Americans that might have otherwise been spared. July 2nd, 1863 saw Confederate forces marching to the Devil's Den. The rocks were originally defended by 2,400 Union soldiers who stood little match against the 5,500 Confederates. The fighting was fierce, but eventually the Union forces retreated. Using elevation to their advantage, Confederate snipers were deployed to the rocks in order to fire upon Union commanding officers and artillerists. Those marksmen were responsible for killing Union General Stephen Weed and Lieutenant Charles Hazlitt. Countless enlisted men met their end to bullets fired by soldiers they couldn't even see. Hazlitt's men retaliated by firing upon the formation with cannons and killing many of the snipers with concussions of air caused by the shock of exploding ordnance. Indiscriminate death came as day faded into night. Confederate troops held the devil's den, but the cost had been staggering. The third and final day of the Battle of Gettysburg dawned, and General Lee went over his plans with his officers. He told Longstreet he was to lead the attack on the Union Center, but his second-in-command outright refused the order. So instead, the duty fell to Major General George Pickett. At 1 p.m., 150 Confederate guns opened up on Union positions. General Meade decided not to return fire until 15 minutes later. He predicted the very location Lee had chosen to assault. Meade wanted to reserve ammunition for the infantry charge he knew was coming. Two hours later, over 12,000 men stepped forward from the Confederate lines and charged three-quarters of a mile in open field towards the Union soldiers. Union artillery and rifles opened up. The results were hellish. Half of the Confederates never made it back. The fighting was vicious, unreal, barbaric. Men in close quarters fought hand-to-hand -hand and used their rifle butts to bludgeon their enemies. Bayonets pierced whatever soft flesh could be found. Disarmed men even used rocks in their bare hands to kill their brethren. For a brief moment, the Union looked doomed. But Northern lines held, pushed back, and then collapsed the rebel attack. It was Union Brigadier General Elon Farnsworth's cavalry charge near the Devil's Den that finally broke Lee's assault. Union forces finally outflanked the Confederates and boxed in their southern foes. In the driving rain on Independence Day, 1863, the two divorced sides of America looked at each other in the distance. And then, Robert E. Lee ordered a full retreat. 170,000 Americans met at Gettysburg. Thousands of them never left. Many of them died near the Devil's Den, where soldiers saw headless torsos ripped apart by cannons, amputated limbs left on the ground, and men who died face down in the mud gripping handfuls of grass. It was enough to mangle the mind and soul of any who bore witness to it. And the terror endures even today. If you travel to the Devil's Den, you'll be in awe of the rock formation that served as a sacrificial altar for American lives. But strange energies and psychic emanations stain that hollowed ground. 
Cameras and recording devices have been known to malfunction or die mysteriously. And when they do work, sometimes they capture unexpected things and unfamiliar faces lurking in the shadows of the den. Full-body apparitions have been seen by numerous witnesses. A man reported seeing a soldier slumped near a tree dying from a grievous chest wound. Others have seen a tired-looking man in a ragged Confederate uniform. He wears a patch signifying his Texan heritage, and he's lost his shoes in the fighting. If you ask him which way to go, he won't say anything. He'll just point south and then disappear before you can ask him anything else. The scariest tale comes from a young woman who visited the site with a friend. She wanted to get a good view of the battlefield, so she began scaling the rocks to reach the top of the Devil's Den. As she passed over a crevice, she felt something shockingly cold around her ankle. She looked down, saw a hand reaching up from the darkness, and below the hand she could see the face of a man looking up at her. He wore a Civil War uniform and yanked her ankle towards the gap in the stone. She panicked and screamed for help. When she was freed, there was no sign of the man. He disappeared beneath the Devil's Den. For the soldiers who perished on the killing fields of Gettysburg, the horrors of the American Civil War were over. But that sort of violence doesn't just dissipate into the air. That emotional energy has to go somewhere, doesn't it? Did it seep into the soil and infect the local farms? Did it poison the produce from the land and its people? Maybe it collected and pooled beneath that consecrated ground. Maybe it flowed freely as the spirits of the dead soldiers haunting the fields and buildings of Gettysburg. Maybe it coalesced near a place that was raised to be a beacon of hope after the war had ended. There, under that thin veneer of optimism and righteousness, laid an aquifer of pain and desolation and terror. Indeed, the war was over for the dead. But for their children, the nightmare was just about to begin. Thank you for joining us on this mini-sode of The Occluded. I hope you enjoyed the little walk down these war-torn paths of American history. It would mean the world to us if you rated and reviewed the show on your podcatcher of choice. If you don't feel like rating and reviewing, that's fine. You can always whisper your thoughts to the man buried beneath a rock formation. If you've ever been to the battlefields of Gettysburg or danced with the devil on a Pennsylvania farm, write into the show at randomdrawpodcast at gmail.com. Season 2 is coming soon, and I would love to hear your spookiest stories. The Occluded is a Random Draw production and was written and hosted by Mark Belisle. That's me and produced and edited by Super Skeptic Dave Hubbard. There's no other producer I'd trust to hold a hill with. The poem at the beginning of the podcast is called The Dying Soldiers. The poet is unknown. Next time on The Occluded, we finish our exploration of Gettysburg with one for the kids. In the meantime, stay safe, open your mind, and keep watching the shadows.